fall 2011, sophomore slash junior year. It doesn't seem like just a year ago. It seems like so much further back, and in some ways, only tomorrow, that the events of this semester took place. But at the same time, so many of these events, oh God, so many, seem to have led to dead ends and closed doors that it makes the events seem even more important in retrospect. Although that's unfair, because it takes away how dreadfully important everything was in the moment. The feeling of life or death, the feeling that everything is so meaningful and for whatever reason was the only thing that mattered. There was a lot that I had to process through, and a lot that I'm still processing through. And walking back to school, I had the same amount of nearly non-existent friends that I had at the end of the previous semester, except, of course, my current roommate, who is sitting in the room while I write this. He hasn't been scared away yet. Footnote. Based on timing, roommate is believed to be Thomas More, though for literary reasons, he is not referred to by name in this section. End footnote. And besides for the vague collection of friends that I had back in Houston, I knew that I was fairly on my own once again to continue processing all of the emotions that I still felt every time that I saw Chelsea around campus. I figured that as a semi-decent total heathen asshole that I am, I should work to forgive Chelsea, or try to, and her friends for what they did, so that in some sense I could move on. I spent a week reflecting on the worth of each, and I'd love to say that it made a profound difference as all my hatred dissolved, but things weren't that simple, and my wounds were a deep, bit too deep. I did come to the conclusion that it would have done the same thing that Chelsea did, so my hatred towards her couldn't be too great. She'd only found a group of friends, or more particularly, a best friend in Lacey, who'd always be there as long as she forfeited who she was as an individual. You see, dear reader, that's the one act that even now I can't exactly forgive Chelsea for. It's not that I can't accept or understand what she did. Hell, I'd do it myself in a heartbeat if the opportunity came along, and I probably have hurt those that I've dated to a similar degree. But I feel that she's such a wonderful person, and it hurts me to see someone reject themselves to throw themselves away, to claim with all seriousness that she is not worthy of being herself because then no one would ever love her. And I know that I followed Chelsea down this path as I've grown bitter with myself in this environment of college and it's something one could so easily do. But her friends, what friends could willingly ask another person to forfeit who they are? What type of people accept others out of loving kindness, even though they can't recognize and respect who their friend actually is?
Footnote. The place that I've kept her has suited her well, though it's not where she wanted to be. And from up on that pedestal, I couldn't tell that she'd rather be down here with me. Mac McAnally. End footnote. It's everything that I complained about before. About an over-demanding compliance to a certain ideology to keep the possibility of friendship alive. But for better or worse, Evan has trained me to avoid boxing myself into other people's ideologies. Except for Evan, of course. So I tend to shy away from listening to people telling me what I must be. If someone wants to be my friend, they will. If they don't, they won't. But still, it burdens my heart that this is how people approach friendship in this world and that no matter what I do, I'm painted as the enemy because I feel that maybe we should respect people for who they are. But alas, I'm a semi-decent, total, heathen asshole. In the course of these self-depressive wonderings, I had some time to reflect for closure over Ashlyn as well. I'd hoped that Chelsea would help me overcome my scars from Ashlyn, even told Ashlyn herself once. And she would still occasionally text or Facebook message me, but always and only on her time. She talked to me one night briefly to explain how University of Houston was far superior to whatever school I was going to. I'm sure it is, but I'll argue with her once. It's not a superior school because other people say it is, but merely because one of the most incredible girls that I've ever known is going there. When I mentioned that I should get to bed since I had church in the morning, she expressed an interesting philosophy. God is a fuck-faced retard. That's stunned. Mainly because I think the creative use of the effort is incredible. And it's a totally interesting theological concept. I can move past the conservative resistance that she's denying God. Saying that there's no hope in the church. That after all, Christianity is pointless. Maybe it is. But at the very least, I can't blame Ashlyn for thinking so. She's grown up in the church. She took me to church on Sundays in high school for crying out loud. She knows enough about God that after all, she can make her own decisions. And I do think she'd make a lovely pastor if she wanted to be one. But to hear as a friend of mine exclaims, the emotion behind her words, what she meant, I'm not exactly sure, but I feel that she was making some theological statement that she was created in an entirely messed up way so that she could never be loved, which meant that she was obviously a mistake. God is a fuck-faced retard because he made the mistake of making Ashlyn the way that she is, and it's something that she struggles with. Upon later reflection, I compare Romans 9, where Paul cites Isaiah talking about what right does the pot have to say to the potter? But it makes my heart go out to her. 
in hope that you'll find love someday. Because although I didn't show it when we were dating, my heart will always love her and her adorable body. Oh, don't, don't get me started. Upon reflection, I was finally able to finish my song that I wrote for Ashley. Although I still need a little work on finding the perfect tune. Then <laughs> unless I see Ashlyn again, I feel that I don't have to worry about perfecting it. Back to my reflections of Chelsea. I watch what dreams may come with a certain degree of focus, looking specifically at what the characters were feeling to draw some vague connection to the reality of my life and my heart. It helped, as do great literary masterpieces, but I remember being imparted with the thesis of the movie and the book. We create our own realities. Maybe the rejection of subjectivism is my ultimate complaint against modern Christianity, but I honestly feel that this principle is meaningful to our lives. For example, as Chelsea and them began to hate and grumble about me more and more, it didn't matter if I was actually the threat or what I was trying to do to them. What mattered is that they believed that I was a threat. And I take some pride in that I can make people believe things. But it's a horrible, horrible feeling to have others look at you in pure disgust. I don't know why I was still convicted. And maybe I should still try since, as always, I only failed again. To talk to Chelsea about everything that had happened. I would guess that I'm just too clingy. I accidentally passed her in the cafeteria one day which made me slightly compelled to take a swipe at her hat that was snugly attached to her head. Being frustrated with my failure to grab the hat and a brief Star Fox quotation by Chelsea of what the heck, where have I told this story before? I sunk into the nearest table in utter despair. God sent some messengers over to eat with me, and one even commented something to the effects that I looked like a decent guy who wouldn't hurt anybody. I don't know if he was being sarcastic based on the situation, but the juxtaposition to how I felt did make me smile. Although my harassment of Chelsea once again got my RD involved, I couldn't give up on my mission. Although I knew that we leave we want to stop hurting people what dreams may come i also know that people can see things when they want to did chelsea want to i dropped a small note of help me to lacy who was wearing my goddamn hat and max in the library and then met the group of them while they were walking back although resolute i was actually going to the library to ask jason if he'd help me with my mission i guess in an odd way he did this time, I didn't miss. I stole Chelsea's hat, dropped my laptop cake, which is actually rather dumb considering how much of a prized possession that is, but I would never have outran anyone wearing that pack and ran. And the only problem is that I soon realized that I had nowhere to run. I ducked for the first shelter that I could find, a bench where Chelsea and I had talked after I tried to break up with her. Through the voices of disgruntled males, 
I had two people wrestle me to the ground and pry the hat from my hands. The Lord knows I held on to that hat with all I had, but I've never been a powerful one, and I'd taken a resolve not to fight back. I didn't want assault to be added to my offenses, but it wasn't enough. After they wrestled the hat from me, they had security there, and I had to talk to them, and my RD, and all the other officials who were all so vague as to exactly what I'd done. In all honesty, I wanted to hear the perception of Chelsea, so I kept quiet in my own opinions, but I never got to hear her side of the story. this was occurring, I was slowly deteriorating as a person. Literally, I was so scared walking around all the time that I could barely eat. And besides for the milk that I drink at mealtimes, I was virtually fasting throughout my days. Not out of some religious conviction, but merely because I was shaking with fear for my stomach that the idea of being hungry just wasn't a realistic option. I tried to talk with Andrea about helping Chelsea and she was wonderful as always, but she's not the type of person to be able to confront people like that. But besides for Andrea and Ebony cussing me out for being an idiot. Footnote. Thank God for someone with sense. I was significantly worried about the reliability of the narrator by this point in the story. Yes, friend, you can figure out in which person I'm referring to whom there. But do, do we really have to go back for more? End footnote. I really didn't have many or any friends to turn to. Emily Summers was rather distraught that I wasn't eating, and Dr. Radcliffe had a meal with me. It was his silly songs that I sung while he was wrestling in my hat. As people did their best to show that they cared about me. That someone, somewhere, cared. But it came about a week later when I realized, looking up from my half-eaten dinner plate, that I'd managed to down half my food that I wasn't alone anymore, that I found someone to be there for me so that I could at least not be scared. My salvation, unfortunately, stems from a male and not some female object of beauty. A dang guy had made the difference between me slipping off into oblivion and me regaining most of my sanity. Now I know where I've summarized all this before. He didn't do much. Realize he's like a platypus, he doesn't do much. But he has this way of listening to you without ever responding to a thing that you say that's absolutely fascinating. I don't know why it's so compelling, but it is. You pour your heart out, make outrageous claims, and there's not a comment of judgment or even concern. Maybe a cool nod, and then on to some random discussion about video games or movies or what. It should be annoying that he can't show that he cares, but there's something so darn reassuring about it. I've talked to Laura about it before, and she's just as annoyed and fascinated by his ability to mesmerize as I am. But Tristan had, uh, from the sounds of her, an incredible woman. I guess they met in kindergarten, sound familiar, and then when he was super depressed in high school, again, familiarity, she'd reconnected with him on MySpace, 
He was going after a different chick at the time that the, that's relevant. And they hit it off. He'd even flown out to her prom senior year or something like that. And now they were going to college two hours away from each other. And he'd drive down to see her almost every weekend. It was the most beautiful love story that I'd ever heard. And I knew he found one of the most special girls in the world without even more than a dinner conversation about this girl. He did bring up the complaint that she was dating her female roommate as well as himself, which obviously made people at Southeastern skeptical. Since Ashlyn's bisexual and this point seemed to only combine the personage of Caroline with the personage of Ashlyn, I improved highly. Tristan commented that her roommate wasn't very attractive, which was thoroughly unfortunate for Tristan, but not a deal breaker. Then came a series of two nights that would change my life, or at least would direct it into the near future. In a desperate attempt to find someone, anyone, who'd listen to my cries, Tristan's a good friend to stabilize me, but as far as helping to work through problems, I texted Ashley one night. She didn't recognize my number, and she texted me on my birthday that she didn't want to start up a conversation. One of my friends had asked why I didn't say, oh, this is Corey, I just texted to start up a conversation. And I showed him the evidence that proved she wouldn't have been interested. I told her it must have been a wrong number because I didn't know if I was even, if it was even her. She memorized my number in high school, but I didn't have mine memorized until I started applying for jobs. I was touched by her genuine concern for this unknown being, which makes me wonder what I did so horribly wrong that her glorious heart can't stand me. My failure, though. Remember, I'm convinced that this is a story of failure, was when I also sent her a Facebook message the same night. She replied and we actually had a brief but interesting conversation. But when she put two and two together that I texted her and was Facebooking her, she freaked out, deleted me from Facebook, and I'm pretty sure I'll never talk to her again. It was my classic mistake of being too clingy, but now I completely and totally isolated the only two people who ever cared enough about me to date me. Well, actually, I hadn't completely isolated Chelsea yet because I actually texted her trying to see if we could sit down and talk. Of course, she just deflected my request in her ever appearance of niceness. When I had to admit that it never happened. I also went out to meet Tristan for a game of Risk. We met earlier by playing Risk through the honors book. Tristan's girlfriend was there and she played for a bit, but there were many people there. Too many for every person to get one set of pieces. I played with Stephen Lee and everything seemed so confusing as if the whole world was spinning. Jerry Lynn, Tristan's girlfriend, if that was her name, had some guy with her, was, was this one of her other boyfriends that Tristan talked about? And I wasn't sure if she was staying the night, but she couldn't sleep in the dorm. And it seemed an awfully long drive to make for the evening. It was a Wednesday after all. 
My head was still spinning from texting Chelsea of the possibility that maybe we'd finally get to talk with the realization that it never would ever happen with hope that maybe I wasn't a failure with the realization that nothing I did mattered that I wanted to win at risk but didn't and Stephen Lee didn't appreciate my failure accepting strategy that I adopted with our troops that this girl this wonderful and amazing girl that Tristan was dating was here and she didn't look at all like I expected her to I mean she's the best a dream girl someone that has to be one of the greatest people in the world and I couldn't get it out of my head that she wasn't good looking maybe even ugly it was the one thing that I could know for certain from the evening, despite so many thoughts spinning around. But it only made my head spin more with questions, with wonder, with everything. How could someone so great be one of the few girls in the world that I can't find physical beauty in? How can I synthesize my understanding and total approval of my friend's relationship with the fact that I can't understand how she looks like a girl at all? But I didn't have time to dwell on these thoughts. She was, after all, his girlfriend. And it didn't matter if I found her attractive. Actually, it simplified things. Because then I wouldn't have any longings in my heart to share in her awesomeness. Besides, I had to try to win risk. I had to get Chelsea off my mind. I had to spend time with my savior, Tristan, and regain some sense of normalness. I had to know... Had I known... That only minutes before Tristan had broken up with Jerry Lynn, I don't know if I would have done things differently. I probably would have thrown a fit, not played risk, and ran back to my room in total despair, or just totally lost everything in that spinning room. God, why did the room not stop spinning? And beat Tristan out for being an utter moron, for giving up on the best thing that ever happened to him. But I didn't know. So I went about blissfully that fateful evening, walked back to my dorm room at midnight, and curled into my bed to go and see Caden at 6 a.m. with risk strategy swimming in my mind until I drifted off into a wonderful sleep. Dear Mr. Caden Douglas, there was a little red squiggly line under your name, Caden, so I figured that I should add it to my dictionary on Microsoft Word because you're an important individual. You're so important, in fact, that if I was only going to write a letter to one person in Ms. Desavido's class, I'd write it to you. It's not because I don't love everyone within your class. I love them all, and you are all exceptional individuals. However, some are always more special than others, and I really appreciate you as a person and a student. Now that I look at what I have on my desk, I should have had you write me a short note. I have a bulletin board that goes on top of my desk in my dorm room, but I don't really like to put things on it. I have a picture of me and a girlfriend of mine from a long, long time ago to remind me of what true love is. A note that I pinned to my board that says bring Caden and Savannah pencils with erasers to remind me to bring you the Pittsburgh Penguin pencils that I brought you the next week. And I figured that there was no reason to take it down because it is a permanent reminder of the good friend that I have in you. I also have my copy of a note that you wrote that reads, I love Corey Cogley. He's a good teacher. Mr. Corey Cogley, Halloween pumpkin. This note hangs above my books in my dorm and is sticky tacked to the wall next to a collection of hockey tickets, arena football tickets, and other souvenirs from my many adventures this semester. There's no doubt that at least to me, you're a very special individual indeed. 
It has been my pleasure to be able to work with you this year. If any days go by where I get tired or frustrated or just don't want to get out of bed, I always think about my buddy Caden and know that I've got to go on to make him proud. And every day that I come to visit was the best day of the week for me and always energized me to combat whatever assignment or test or problem that life presented me with. And I know a large part of me, large part of that was because of the joy and energy that you were able to give to me simply because you are the great person of Caden Douglas. I cannot even begin to express what a hero you are in my life. You truly are an absolutely incredible individual, and I wish you the very best as you continue your many years in school, and I hope that you continue to be the terrific person that you are. If life ever gets frustrating, I hope that you remember the words of a song that I like, Sail On, Sail On, Sailor. It means just to keep going, even if time gets tough, because that's the right thing to do. To be strong and know that in the end, being the best person that we can be is worth every ounce of energy that we have to put into it. Just know that you will always be loved for the great person you are. Sincerely, your friend and teacher, Mr. Corey Cogley. So, Corey, you want to go down to New College this weekend? Tristan said. Footnote, yes. I'm sad, too, that this narrative doesn't start with Laura talking. And marshmallows. Where is the damn marshmallows? End footnote. As we sat around our large table at dinner. Those large tables didn't seem to survive after this moment, but we still had a crowd in those days. Well, I need something to do for my change project, right? But Tristan, I thought you said we, you weren't going back down there this semester since you broke up with Jerry Lynn, I questioned. Well, we've been getting, getting along okay. We might even be friends again. Besides, I talked to Jerry Lynn about it, and she said she can hook you up with her roommate if you'd like. Abby is totally down to give you a blowjob if you want. I'm not really a fan, but we might as well see what will happen. It would be an adventure at least. Though, I never would learn why Tristan changed his mind. Only the week before, he said that going down as originally planned was one out of the question after he broke up with Jerry Lane. Afterwards, he'd comment that the whole thing was a mistake, that he never should have taken us down because no good came from it. From my perspective, I don't think it was a mistake at all. True, we were all lucky that it worked out, and there's still so many ways that in which we are all emotionally dealing with what happened that weekend. And... We all got hurt. Laura came up to me on the way to class. Curse you, Laura. I'm sure that I'll miss one of those eventually. Footnote. Ladder versus later is one of my most common mistakes in writing through all of this. Laura, on the other hand, is a uh, grandma Nazi, so she wasn't very appreciative when I made that mistake. End footnote. And said, did Tristan tell you? Did he tell me what? There were plenty of things that could have happened, and by Laura's tone of voice, although slightly excited, I wasn't exactly sure that I'd like her response. Well, I'll wait and have Tristan tell you. She stormed off to my shouts of, Laura, tell me! Needless to say, I was uncomfortable all through class. Okay, Laura, I said forcefully as I caught up with her. You're going to tell me what Tristan said. 
Oh, this weekend, the party we're going to, it's called Queer Ball. So we get to dress up as the opposite gender. Oh, that was a relief. Really? I thought it might be something bad. Well, it's a little awkward. I'm sure if, not sure if I like it. Although I've never really shied away from wearing a dress. Laura and I planned our trip to, to Queer Ball for a human diversity class that we had together as we both ended up writing our Experiencing Differences paper on the subject. As strictly an academic venture, I figured that I'd go down and explore what a different college would be like. I even stayed up until 3am in the cafe writing my paper, something I never do, and tried to explain to a tired Sean, man of God, that I wore a dress for academic purposes, which he didn't take too well to. But if you want to read my academic thoughts, then find my paper. For the story that really matters, continue on. Laura, is Molly coming with us? I asked. Well, I didn't really ask. I don't think she really wanted to come. Laura replied in a half-concerned attitude that she employs when someone tries to get her to be concerned about something that she doesn't really care about. I'd hoped that Molly would come along with us because she was friends with a lot of other girls in the honors program, and if I can make a good impression and a bond of friendship, then it would help greatly in opening the doors to friends with more girls on campus. Laura, however, was indifferent to my request. My friendship with Laura needs a note as well. Although she'd been in class with me through the honors program, we never really got to know each other until I started hanging out with Tristan. I'd written her off as a potential friend since she had a boyfriend, so there wasn't much of a reason to befriend her to begin with. But she dragged Tristan and I out to practice marching for band, she majored in music education, and slowly we started to bond as friends. One night, when Tristan dragged me to a volleyball game, he was more interested in hitting on the chick that he brought along, my field study partner from freshman year, who'd broken up with her boyfriend over the summer. Footnote, Melissa. End footnote. So, when Laura asked if anyone would come to a music concert with her, I figured it'd be a good reason to slip off and maybe form a good friendship. We ended up catching the end of Goodwill Hunting later that night, as well as having Laura make me hot chocolate. I can't remember if it was that night or a few nights later, but I remember drinking my hot chocolate and having to run back to my dorm because I was just overwhelmed with the idea that I actually had friends and people who cared about me. And after all the heartbreak from my previous semester, I couldn't bring myself to hope that someone actually cared about me. But there was Laura. And to make things better, she didn't even mind if I cussed around her. The car ride down was rather uneventful. Mainly Laura complaining about her life dilemma that she wanted to break up with her boyfriend, a fact that would cause her more emotional pain than she was feeling in her present turmoil. I, on the other hand, was excited that I could force my friends to listen to my music as I sped into the gathering evening towards a different experience with a vague hope that somehow I'd meet a girl who would at least want to talk to me. But without Molly, the odds seemed a fair amount lower than they should be. I had no way to know that I was about to be swept off my feet. understand, dear reader, how much angst there was inside me. 
God, how much there still is inside me now. Everywhere I turned, it just seemed like I wasn't good enough. That I, I wouldn't do something right. And then right in front of me every day, oh, reader help me. There was Lacey and Chelsea who would remind me how horrible and rotted and no good I am. And do you know, do you really know what it's like to have someone look at you with entire and complete disgust? Not just that someone doesn't like you, but that who you are is entirely despicable. I can only imagine what others like the Invisible Man felt from this type of rejection. And I understand why Jackie Robinson's number is retired in every Major League Baseball franchise. No one should ever have to go through that type of hate. To have someone look at you as if whoever made you, whoever thinks you're worth anything, whoever would love you is a fuck-faced retard. And that's how I felt. Not just that no one would ever love me, except maybe Tristan. Chelsea had always said that I needed to work on making guy friends first. But, but that any type of intimacy to comfort my soul was out of reach. Sure, kindergarten every Thursday was refreshing. But seeing how five-year-olds interact physically just opened the longing in my mind. Why can't I do that? How I long for just one hug from my mother, and I value my grandma's hugs with intense value, or from somebody who could reaffirm my worth as a human being. But everywhere, God, everywhere, I was met with disappointment, failure, and rejection. the room itself. I don't know. I've always been a sucker for the spatial design of things. Maybe it's because my dad would always drag us around looking at model homes or because my mom loved to maximize space and watch decorating shows or maybe it's just because I'm visual and associate the environment with the person and the passion. But the room, like the person, took my breath away in such a subtle but disturbing manner. I mean, there was no time to sit around in wonderment. It was already past my bedtime. I had academic research to do, and after meeting our host, would a mine host reference be appropriate here? Although, despite my insistence on matriarchy, I feel that I play Norman Paperman within this analogy. Yes, Tristan, I ran off with an actress and didn't get rich, who introduced us to her roommates, of which, how many was she sleeping with? We had to figure out what I was going to wear. Laura gave me one of her bras, Jerry Lynn found some padding, and a lovely purple dress. But the room struck me like seeing the reflection of the most beautiful woman or object in the world. My metaphorical understanding between my internal brokenness and my love for the occupant of the room is expressed in the short story, The Loveliest Room. There were, oh God, there were so many typewriters crowding around an old style desk. And my mind couldn't help but think of Caroline and how much she loves to write and would love this collection of typewriters. And two crates, two flipping crates of records. My mind couldn't help but think of Ashlyn and how excited she had been to get a record player and how I'd given her the Jimmy Buffett albums that my uncle gave me one year for Christmas. Jerry Lynn didn't have any Buffett, but she had about every other album I could ever need. And, and, dear reader, a loft. Not an actual one like in Sebastian's house, 
but the bed was lofted up in the air as to create space underneath it, and everything just fell together in such a lovely mess. But it was beautiful. But there was a chick who'd go out with me somewhere, and I was pretty convinced she wasn't in this room with me. <clears throat> Laura had a boyfriend, and Jerry Lynn was my best friend's ex. Now, on to the search. Before the party, Tristan and Jerry Lane took us on a tour of New College, describing some of the finer attributes as well as visiting the bay that the college is on. A large house was throwing a party nearby, and despite the loud New Age, new age music, brief thoughts of my vague remembrance of the Great Gatsby floated into my mind. That was a love story, wasn't it? There was a lovely tree by the bay that we climbed on as a monument of safety, and Ever since watching Phoebe in Wonderland, I've had a certain fascination with the symbolism of trees. Although, my fascination with the symbolism of nature stemmed all the way back to Caroline. Onwards toward the party. The strangest part, I have to admit, is that I couldn't go in my shoes, so I had to walk around barefoot. But, brrr, I had the utmost respect when girls say that they are cold all the time. So, sorry, Chelsea, because it was really nippy in that outfit. Abby made a stunning man, and she reminded me so much of Holly in the way that she looked, although she's also an intelligent feminist. So all the more reason to disagree with Tristan's evaluation of her hotness. But the party wasn't much. A few demonstrations, a few people, Laura being Laura, me being cold. I'm never really one to venture out and meet people, so I just shattered the group waiting to go back and fall asleep. I mean, when we returned to the dorm room, I wasn't really intending to fall asleep, but I kind of just laid down to help collect my thoughts and accidentally passed out. Did I mention that Jerry Lynn mentioned that I was cute? Sometime, when we were at the bay, Yeah, Tristan, why didn't you tell her that I was so cute? or that half-wakenness that you get near 3 or 4 in the morning to the wonderful fact that a girl, Jerry Lynn, had me in her arms. I'd kind of fallen asleep on her bed, and it wasn't a very intrusive form of cuddling. I was just scared that if I rolled over or moved in any way, the magic would be lost. We hardly knew each other, and although I longed to cuddle with someone more than anything in the world, I have a strict policy not to make the first move, and one can't really discuss these things while one is asleep, since it's the middle of the night. Laura and Tristan were in the bed above our heads, continuing the game of truth or dare that we started when I passed out. Laura would eventually come down to sleep on the floor, but I never truly understood why they were in such a compromising position, since Laura had a boyfriend and Tristan was going after Melissa so they could make little Packer babies. But I had a girl, and at least for the night, I had someone to help calm all these physical uncertainties that I had. I don't mean about sex. I mean that I was so damn physically scared that I shook so much that I couldn't fucking, oh, Jerry Lynn seasoning on my life, eat for a damn week. And I needed someone, somehow, 
to use their body to tell me that everything was going to be okay. Not in a sexual way, but just in a way where two people can share intimacy and love and attachment like the relationship between a mother and her child. At some point, the sun came up and Jerry Lynn rolled over to give me more space and I decided to start peeking around the room. Laura gave me a deck of cards so that I wouldn't bother her. In my head, the artist's song kept playing over and over again, if it's wrong. I couldn't exactly remember the meaning of the song, other than it's not an exact support of doing immoral things. The lines, though, drunk people all around. The room's got a head start. I know that I could use somebody to hold me in the dark. Sound the alarm. Just added to my overloaded mind as I processed and enjoyed whatever was happening around me. For the night or the moment, I had something special. we all got up around noon, Jerry Lynn took us to the Amish restaurant where she takes most of her out-of-town guests, and she even bought my meal. Now, there's a girl that I can get used to. It was an odd double date, me and Jerry Lynn with Tristan and Laura, but somehow, for the conclusion of our time, it seemed like no other logical solution could be found. After we got back to the dorm, we decided on some more cuddle time before we left. I pushed aside the question. Although, when we both started to wake up in the morning, Jerry Lynn and I had talked enough so that we could really cuddle. There's no way to describe what happened in Lawrence that night. From the small pieces that I can gather from Jerry Lynn, she was able to resolve so much of her broken heart from Tristan. At least, she needed it as much as I did. And I'll never forget that. What it feels like to be in the arms of someone who needs you not for sexual pleasure, but just because of the pure longing of human emotion and the endless cry that was in my heart that I needed someone, anyone, to understand me and to be caressed with an embrace that allows for complete and total understanding. Stephen commented that being in love is being comforted by the inability to understand. And never more have I understood the meaning of being comforted. I know it's not poetic. I know it's not perfect. But it was so incredible. As I sat there holding Jerry Lynn while she held me, I knew that, that for a few months anyways, I wouldn't have to be scared. I wouldn't have to be lonely. And I wouldn't have to question my worth. Here, in that moment, I was reaffirmed in a way that I could never have imagined. As we zoomed off back towards Lakeland, I had somewhere to be. I let Tristan drive, since he'd drive faster, and sat in the back reflecting on everything that had happened while Tristan texted some chick from back home and held Laura's hand when he wasn't shifting gears. As we crossed the bridge leading out of Sarasota and into Bradington, spring home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Time to go home from Don't Stop the Carnival came over my car radio. It was the perfect ending to the weekend's affair. Although Tristan commented at Henny's remarks, 
Now, mine host, don't be so melancholy. You made the most out of Amy Ball's folly. You went crazy, went off with an actress, and didn't get rich. What can I say? I still love you, you son of a bitch. With a phrase I'll never forget. Well, that sucks. What's the point of getting the actress if you don't get rich? But I don't think Tristan would understand the love affair of Don't Stop the Carnival. But I know that I now did. Maybe Tristan was just being sarcastic. After getting back to school, I didn't have much time to reflect on the events of the weekend. Besides for writing my paper, of course. I watched football, got my paper done, went around Monday and entire days, and counted the days until Thanksgiving break. Being mid-November, November 16th was coming up, and I figured that I should pay homage to this lovely holiday on the Corey calendar. I was all ready to settle down and watch Prince Caspian that Ashlyn had so much love for and reflect on a relationship that had been everything I could have hoped for, even if she'll never talk to me again. Jerry Lynn posted something on Facebook wondering when I would be back down to new college with the incentive of free cuddles. But I had a more important memorial to worry about. Besides, I was good on cuddles for the next three months. I told her that I'd come up on the spare day. We had class canceled on Friday and I was going to Tampa Thursday to watch the Penguins lightning game anyways. If she wanted, hey, I was single, maybe she'd go out with me. She was dating how many people as it was. The odds weren't against me. But my main focus was November 16th. We got talking Wednesday, though, the 16th, and I sent her what I had of my autobiography. Hmm. Should I allude to this document itself? Well, the first hundred pages, a.k.a. Book of Orange. Uh, green. Book of Green. Is what I had done then. I also sent that out to other friends. Lisa, Ebony, Jerry Lynn, Megan, <laughs> Laura, and Leanna so that she'd stay busy reading that and not bother me in my reflections of the hottest girl I've ever known. I felt slightly guilty since I figured that action may seriously increase the amount that she liked me, but it oversimplified things. The next day, Thursday, and the one-year anniversary of Chelsea, November 17th, was a crazy one. First, I got to see Miss D's kindergarten class and my buddy Caden while I was driving back while I was driving back to school Brittany called me because she needed a ride to the WIC office to get her paperwork processed so I drove her there and it was nice to be able to catch up with her for a little bit I had to text Melissa so that she could tell Dr. Radcliffe that I'd be late for assessment of letters my only class of the day and I was in class maybe 20 minutes then it was off to go find Tristan since I had to take him down to the Tampa airport since he was going home for Thanksgiving. I figured maybe we'd be able to talk a little bit about Jerry Lynn since I was going down to Sarasota later that day. And I still had no idea how to play this situation. But we just talked about sports while I made him listen to my music. Tristan has never been one to confront issues. Then I swung by the University of Tampa to eat dinner with my brother. He wasn't going to the game since I got the tickets organized through my lightning friend, Jordan. After the Penguins got killed by a far inferior lightning team that Evan would intern with later that spring, I drove the hour drive through St. Petersburg 
St. Petersburg that took me through Bradington to Sarasota where I met up with Jerry Lynn. She had greatly fallen in love with me while reading through my thoughts and making me a blanket. I loved the one she had on my first trip and she said she'd make me a green one. I told her if she did, I'd love her forever. She sent me a Facebook message saying that she had so many questions for me, but we never really got around to asking any of those. She was in the middle of explaining why she was such a horrible person, a question to calm my nerves about the whole situation. When Abby came in and the three of us ended up cuddling until the morning. Although my verbally minded mind would have preferred to have finished that conversation. We woke up the next morning, later than I'd have liked, and Jerry Lynn fumbled around trying to get her homework ready for class while I tried to finish the conversation from the previous night in vain. As a long block of time to be in class approached, I figured that it was logical for me to head up to my grandparents so that I'd be at the Shrine Club in time for dinner, and there was no use in waiting around for two and a half hours. But there's something in her voice, and the way that she asked me to stay, that I figured that it would probably be a good idea. I'm still not sure why I did it. Maybe I just really wanted her to watch rain over me. After organizing what I could of her room, please, you must understand my love for organizing. I just sat waiting for the sun to start going down, which would mark the return of this girl who seemed, as far as I could tell, rather in love with me, which was an unusual situation for myself. When she came back, I could just tell the overall joy that she had felt that I hadn't left, and we decided to go out and get a bite to eat. Me, being cheap and indecisive, decided on McDonald's. But I did get a cool souvenir glass Coke cup, so that was pretty neat. Not like my mom's with Peanuts characters on the side, but... I'm not exactly sure what we talked about. My granddad did call, wondering where I was at, so I had to tell him that I'd be up the next day. But somehow, it was becoming more and more obvious that she kind of liked me. When we got back to the room, she asked if she could kiss me, but for no real logical reason other than Chelsea had made me super scared of kissing and that I wanted her to ask me out, I told Jerry Lynn that I'd only kiss someone if I was going out with them. A few moments later, she asked me out and I said yes. But I must admit, I probably should have taken my time to figure everything out. I just said yes so that we can move on, watch my movie, not worry about talking, not figure out the details of how everything would work out, and I never really thought that a kiss could be wonderful. I was never really a fan. Ashland kisses meant something, but they never made me feel like I enjoyed kissing. But Jerry Lynn awakened a part of me that was really enjoyed kissing. But it was a means to an end. Just an oversight of all the emotional feelings that I was feeling because I was too scared or confused or frightened to get to the bottom of things before I started up a relationship. We figured we'd call Tristan in the morning because I figured I'd like his approval, but just in case he disapproved, maybe I should enjoy that evening at hand. Jerry Lynn watch Rain Over Me because I had some hope that somehow this movie would change things. It's a great movie and it was next on my list. But somehow it couldn't penetrate the wall of Jerry Lynn like I'd hoped. It didn't penetrate my walls the way I had hoped. 
I mean, sure, we went out and dealt with our emotions the Jerry Lynn way and wandered around campus, exclaiming how everything is wonderful as she recounted facts about herself, such as her love for horses. And I just sat in awe of the incredible girl who was my friend, my girlfriend. Sometime the next day, I snuck away and drove back off to Leesburg for Thanksgiving, thinking, I've got myself a girlfriend. November 18th. Phone conversations and Skype are wonderful, and I really have no problem with long-distance relationships. Remember how Ashlyn and I's relationship got worse when we got closer together? I did scare my granddad when he came out one night, and I was still on the phone near 3 in the morning. But alas, we all get smitten over someone at some time in our lives, and I was determined to love this girl. But there were also my defense mechanisms, the ones that I had to build in to protect myself. I'd already done so much to naturally curb my passion, and the fact that I didn't find her that physically attractive helped play to my benefit, because I could focus on the more important issues of building the relationship. But something happened. Something horrible. I'd set aside a certain amount that I'd let myself care for the first three months of our relationship, the time that Chelsea and I had been together, so that I wouldn't make the same mistakes twice, especially since I'm not in the habit of being one of the several individuals that someone is dating. Although I'd lost how many girlfriends because I couldn't compete. But the problem in the first week, I used up all of my caring. The Sunday before school would start again, Jerry Lynn said she'd come to Lakeland so that we could hang out and she could go to church. She went to church in Lakeland from when she was dating Tristan. She however woke up late for church so she didn't leave until I was already back in Lakeland. But no worries, I just wait for my love and Jerry Lynn is truly lovely about driving and making time to see people. We walked around Lake Bonnie. I took some pictures of us to put as the background of my phone. We went out to grab a bite to eat, and then we went to Bible quiz thing that she helped Tristan out with. A problem occurred when 8 p.m. approached since the Steelers were playing the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football. And after Chelsea, I had made a resolve not to miss a Steelers game for a girl, no matter <clears throat> how wonderful. Jerry Lynn, however, let me drive her car back to campus, and she later rode home with Tristan. They spent a fair amount of time talking that night. I don't know about what, I was focused on the game. They came in to join me, but I guess I didn't look over at them. See, this is why I'm a jerk. So they went outside in the Bower Courtyard to continue the conversation. We hung out a little bit before she left, which included Sean stumbling through the lobby in a super tired daze. I figured I shouldn't introduce him to my girlfriend just because I didn't want to blow his mind with that little sleep. But she seemed to have concern about us. And as I hugged her before she drove off into the night and hoped that everything would be alright, that we would be fine. But I also knew in my heart that I couldn't care, that I was so broken. Everything would be up to her, and true, she really, really liked me. But how could that possibly be enough for her to fight for our relationship among all the different options that she had in her life? And as she drove off, I mumbled to myself, I hope so. I hope we're all right.
The next week offered me an emotional roller coaster in the fact that I couldn't care about my girlfriend. On one hand, I did want to get too attached to this amazing and incredible person, and on the other hand, I couldn't get attached because I was so scared and confused and I had no idea what was going on. I made a resolve that Tristan was wrong in breaking up with Cherry Lynn, despite the constant pressure on him to break up or everyone saying, why are you dating someone that you obviously won't marry? To me, that was never the question. To have been able to marry Jerry Lynn would have been wonderful. And I know people have searched their whole life and never found someone who would be as great a wife as Jerry Lynn. The problem was, basically, if I wanted to date her, if I really wanted to deal with the emotional stress of knowing how many other people she was dating and having that constant pang of worry that I wasn't enough. Although I talked with Jerry Lynn most nights, I normally hid my phone in my room just so I wouldn't expectantly wait for text messages or constantly be wondering why I wasn't being thought about. And since I, I'd given up caring, I, I, I had made a resolve to make Jerry Lynn initiate most of our contact. I even counted the number of times she called me versus me calling her on my phone. I had it down to a science. Laura was a blessing during this time because she was truly able to help balance my insanity. Symbolically, I overcompensated for my dislike of Jerry Lynn's extremely short hair. I always liked Ashlyn's long hair, but I never knew how much she completed the feminine form for me by finding a certain attraction in Laura's blonde hair. To say that Laura and I were just best friends would be the complete truth. But in reality, it was something a little more. It was a quiet love affair between friends who both knew that we could never or should never be with each other. But she'd grab my hand and we'd walk around campus as she did with so many other boys she knew on campus. She was rather flirty during the semester. I remember one night where she dragged me out of my room for a Taco Bell run, something that I'm ideologically opposed to. But just having something to do and being around people picked me up emotionally. It made me feel so much better about life in general. I developed a philosophy out of this that maybe people need more than just one person to help them through life because maybe we need good friends to help us out as well. But wherever Jerry Lynn let me down, Laura picked up the slack. Tristan had become distracted dating Melissa, and we never really talked, which was a shame since I really could have used his insight into how I should play my hand and handle my relationship. To make matters worse, Jerry Lynn still talked to Tristan a lot, which means that most days Tristan knew more about my relationship than I did, but he never said a word of advice or counsel to me. I talked to Laura about this, and she told me to text him more. I explained that guys don't text each other, and when Tristan showed up, I won the argument. The following song I wrote with Laura, and I think it describes our friendship perfectly. You and I communicate through marshmallows. And whenever we're together, life is just mellow. Late in the evening, the world keeps on being with two friends who sit and drink their cocoa together. 
and the world feels so much better. I'm not a super rhymy person, because you are, duh, you say as you sip away your drink with marshmallows in your teeth, but with a casual reply, I sigh. I have a Texas address and a snowman's heart. I have a terrific brain with a few different parts. I have a thoughtful mind with lots of smarts. I found that I have a wonderful heart. You smile because you know this all. That's why you fall where the ragged people go. But to lose is not your style. I have a Florida address and a lover's desire. I have a musical brain with a few singing choirs. I have a talkative mind with lazy flat tires. I found that I perfected desire. But all this romance just happened by chance. As marshmallows dance, we take a glance at the empty mugs, staring back at us with grins so smug. We want to cuss. I have a Texas address and a snowman's heart. I have a terrific brain with a few different parts. I have a thoughtful mind with lots of smarts. I found I have a wonderful heart. Well, I have a Florida address and a lover's desire. I have a musical fucking brain and a few fucking singing choirs. I have a talkative mind with some lazy shit tires. I found that I fucked up desire. (laughs) And we go our separate ways. Best buddies. And always to say. So guess who thinks you're awesome? I do. And I have a Texas address and a snowman's heart. I have a terrific brain with a few fucked up parts. I have a thoughtful mind with a shit ton of smarts. And I found... Maybe I don't have a wonderful heart. Don't be silly. I have a Florida address and a lover's desire. I have a musical brain with a few singing choirs. I have a talkative mind with lazy flat tires. I found that I've perfected desire. You and I communicate through marshmallows and whenever we're together life is just mellow the next weekend and the following scenes help to convey my total apathy towards Jerry Lynn and in all honesty, are not particular moments that I can be proud of. Although, like Orange, I'd done in the moment and lost the hope, I'd always managed to hurt this girl who cared about me in unimaginable ways. Since I'm obviously biased in favor of myself, I probably can't describe the exact details accurately, but I went down the next weekend to visit Jerry Lynn down in her lovely little dorm room. I was excited because this was the first official time that I went down as her boyfriend. It was pretty cool. But I couldn't really care about much more than some vague excitement, 
Friday night didn't start off well as Jerry Lynn took me to a local party and although there was intellectual conversation that was engaging, my wondering nature eventually wanted to just wander off and enjoy the sanctuary and the lovely December night air. And just everything that seemed so lovely while it wrapped around me in a blanket of wonderfulness. The problem, of course, is one should not wander off from one's girlfriend that he's just met while leaving his cell phone in the dorm room, so while she's a little tipsy from the party, I'm nowhere to be found. Needless to say, Jerry Lynn wasn't happy when she found me again, although slightly relieved that I'd come back. I'd actually had wandered all the way back to the dorm room before I realized I couldn't get in. That nobody was going to be back soon. I should probably go back and leave the sanctuary to which I'd returned. When I returned, Jerry Lynn needed me to be able to care, to show empathy, to hold her, and to understand the pain that my actions had caused her. But I couldn't. I just sat there while my girlfriend cried, and Jerry Lynn pointed out to me too, completely unable to care. Needlessly to say, I found myself sleeping alone that night. The next day didn't work out too much better. When Jerry Lynn and I went on our nighttime walk, Around campus, I said some rather mean and biting words. And when she confronted me about it, she does have a wonderful way of being direct. The only reason that I could find why I'd said it was because I wanted to hurt you. Again, not something that goes over well in a conversation with one significant other. But there was so much hatred and fear inside me, and I've grown up in a household where love is rather biting. I've seen modeled how my father and brother and mother use love in a way that makes one reserved about what one says, but uses the truth in a frank and biting way to help model one into a better person. Sure, it's not the best type of love in the world, but it's what I've grown up with. I didn't want to hurt her because I didn't like her, or I thought she was ugly, although she never understood. The more I got to know her, the more I appreciated her body just because it was an expression of her soul or because I found some sick fascination with seeing her heartbroken. I wanted to hurt simply because I cared and it's the honesty one develops with individuals that you can trust completely when you can use the truth to point out other failures instead of subtle tricks to cause despair. It wasn't what I should have done at all, but it's what I did. We continued our walk, but those few words stung. When we went back to the dorm, she tried to show me an anime series that she liked, but when she took her shirt off while we were lying in bed, it made me uncomfortable. Oh, all the little things that I thought I'd be okay with, but I wasn't. It was all the little things. She got frustrated at something I said, went out of the room, and I fell asleep alone for the second and last night of my visit. next weekend and the following scenes helped to convey my total apathy towards Jerry Lynn, and in all honesty are not particular moments that I can be proud of. Although like Orange, I'd got in the moment and lost the hope, I'd always managed to hurt this girl who cared about me in unimaginable ways. Since I'm obviously biased in favor of myself, I probably can't describe the exact details accurately. But I went down the next weekend to visit Jerry Lynn down in her lovely little dorm room. I was excited because this was the first official time that I went down as her boyfriend. It was pretty cool. But I couldn't really care about much more than some vague excitement 
Friday night didn't start off well as Jerry Lynn took me to a local party and although there was intellectual conversation that was engaging, my wondering nature eventually wanted to just wander off and enjoy the sanctuary and the lovely December night air. And just everything that seemed so lovely while it wrapped around me in a blanket of wonderfulness. The problem, of course, is one should not wander off from one's girlfriend that he's just met while leaving his cell phone in the dorm room, so while she's a little tipsy from the party, I'm nowhere to be found. Needless to say, Jerry Lynn wasn't happy when she found me again, although slightly relieved that I'd come back. I'd actually had wandered all the way back to the dorm room before I realized I couldn't get in. That nobody was going to be back soon. I should probably go back and leave the sanctuary to which I'd returned. When I returned, Jerry Lynn needed me to be able to care, to show empathy, to hold her, and to understand the pain that my actions had caused her. But I couldn't. I just sat there while my girlfriend cried, and Jerry Lynn pointed out to me too, completely unable to care. Needlessly to say, I found myself sleeping alone that night. The next day didn't work out too much better. When Jerry Lynn and I went on our nighttime walk, Around campus, I sent some rather mean and biting words. And when she confronted me about it, she does have a wonderful way of being direct. The only reason that I could find why I'd said it was because I wanted to hurt you. Again, not something that goes over well in a conversation with one significant other. But there was so much hatred and fear inside me, and I've grown up in a household where love is rather biting. I've seen modeled how my father and brother and mother use love in a way that makes one reserved about what one says, but uses the truth in a frank and biting way to help model one into a better person. Sure, it's not the best type of love in the world, but it's what I've grown up with. I didn't want to hurt her because I didn't like her, or I thought she was ugly, although she never understood. The more I got to know her, the more I appreciated her body just because it was an expression of her soul or because I found some sick fascination with seeing her heartbroken. I wanted to hurt simply because I cared and it's the honesty one develops with individuals that you can trust completely when you can use the truth to point out other failures instead of subtle tricks to cause despair. It wasn't what I should have done at all, but it's what I did. We continued our walk, but those few words stung. When we went back to the dorm, she tried to show me an anime series that she liked, but when she took her shirt off while we were lying in bed, it made me uncomfortable. Oh, all the little things that I thought I'd be okay with, but I wasn't. It was all the little things. She got frustrated at something I said, went out of the room, and I fell asleep alone for the second and last night of my visit. did show up though, although I'm pretty sure with every intention of breaking up with me. Maybe that wasn't exactly her primary intention, but when she texted me to come out and meet with her, and all I replied with was, meh. I think her frustrations with me probably pointed her in that direction. But we did end up going out to the period to talk about some things, although my apathy made conversation difficult. There was a point in it all when I figured she'd probably break up with me, or at least if I was in her shoes, I'd break up with me. But she didn't. I don't know what in my honesty convinced her to stay with me, but she did. We ended up driving off campus to an empty parking lot, cuddling and making out in the back seat with Jerry Lynn's hamster on the floor. She was on her way driving home. 
And it ended up with me staying out until 5.30 in the morning, and Jerry Lynn giving me a handjob, my distorted view of sexuality. Ashlyn always liked the concept. Truly all I feel like saying about that. But at least I had the experience of staying out all night with a chick in the backseat of a car. Me and my apathy. Sometime near New Year's, I mentioned to Jerry Lynn that I probably wouldn't be able to care for a few months yet, especially since I'd spend most of the first half of the semester getting ahead of my score. I figured that this shouldn't be too shocking of news, but she didn't want to have to continue dealing with my apathy. We'd planned on going out on a date when we got back, me wearing whatever dress she picked out and me stuffing her clothes. For a while, that image would be floating in my mind as a highly compelling and a permanent reminder of what a cute couple we could have made. But she called me later that night and we talked, and she was pretty convinced that she wanted to break up with me. So, since I was apathetic, I could plead my case and let her go. That's really all that I could do. Without even a tear, the greatest girl that I ever dated left my life. Note. I also wrote Ashlyn and Oz for children's literature during this time. I had Jerry Lynn look over it, but she said that my portrayal of Ashlyn as a pessimistic non-hero was rather disturbing, especially in regards to my understanding of life. I also got slightly obsessed with the understanding exactly what a hero is defined as and enjoyed when Grant came back to the room and made me watch Bolt with him. That helped to set the juxtaposition in perspective.